KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Thursday, October 4th. San Diego needs substitute teachers. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. San Diego County public health officials say they're seeing the number of flu cases this year outpacing the five-year average, which leads them to believe that this year's flu season could be severe. For the week ending Saturday, 28 flu cases were reported in the county. That's compared to the previous five-year average of 19 during the same week. County Public Health Officer Dr. Wilma Wooten says the best way to lower your risk of getting the flu is to get your flu shot. San Diego County supervisors voted on Wednesday to spend a half a million dollars for a consultant to help secure funding to finish the San Diego River Park. The park is 52 miles long, running from the Coyamaca Mountains to Julian on out to the Pacific Ocean. Funding is needed to buy the land and create trails. County officials have not said how much the project would cost. The Breeders' Cup returns to San Diego this weekend. On Wednesday, race officials gave a briefing on how they plan to protect the horses. The animals have already been through a security check, and they're also getting what's called trot-up exams. Dr. William Farmer of Churchill Downs is helping run the tests at Del Mar. As we did last year, two exams were are required. Um, where we are keeping track of these horses. This is an opportunity for us to examine these horses with weight up to help replicate what we anticipate to see on race day as these horses are warming up in the post parade. Last summer, several horses died at Del Mar, but track officials say Del Mar is listed as the safest track in the industry in the past three years. The first Breeders' Cup events will run on Friday. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Substitute teachers are in high demand in order for school districts to maintain state-required coverage in classrooms. KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez tells us there's now a real financial benefit for those who qualify to be teachers for a day or longer. Samantha Moan, Miss Sam to her students, is a new substitute teacher this week here at Montgomery Middle School in Linda Vista. This is seventh grade social studies class. It's a long way from the law firm job she used to have. The COVID-19 pandemic left her wanting more for her future. A bachelor's degree and the state's 30-day emergency teaching permit brought her here on the road to a full teaching credential someday. This job helps me like see the real issues that kids are facing today, see what I can do to help, and see and honestly see the holes in the education system that we have today and then Hopefully, when I can get my degree, figure out ways where I can be the bridge to fix those gaps. Ms. Sam and other qualified college graduates are in high demand as substitute teachers in San Diego Unified and most other districts in the county. COVID confusion and uncertainty has emptied the teaching pool. 
A sub job used to pay about $125 a day. But now look at the substitute teacher daily pay rate in some local districts. San Diego Unified starts at $172 a day, up to $285 a day for a long-term resident sub. In the Escondido Union High School District and Poway Unified School District, the pay rate is $180 to $200 daily. And in the San Isidro District, the pay is at a high of $225 to $285 a day. We're all looking for substitute um, teachers, bus drivers, paraeducators, those folks who work directly with our students. If you have a passion for kids, um, any district in the county would love to have you. In August, Governor Newsom tried to support the situation with an executive order. The order allowed retiring teachers to return to work immediately, doing away with a six-month waiting period. Samantha Moan will finish her assignment at Montgomery Friday and look forward to her next lesson. It's a very hard career, but it is super rewarding. And those are the little bits that I need to focus on because those are what keeps me going. School districts look forward to many more substitutes willing to trudge this road of education. And that was KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. U.S. Customs and Border Protection at the San Ysidro Port of Entry are gearing up for November 8th. That's the day the U.S. is lifting border restrictions with Mexico and Canada for fully vaccinated foreigners. KPBS's Alexandra Ronhell has more from a briefing with CBP about what travelers should expect. Si no tienen prueba de vacuna, no van a poder cruzar. If you don't have proof of vaccination, you won't be able to cross, says a CBP agent. But the rules only apply to non-citizens crossing into the U.S. CBP agents detailed their plan for fully reopening the border on November 8. They say everyone will be required to carry proof of vaccination, but not everyone will be asked to show it. Officers will ask for vaccination proof on a case-by-case -case basis. Minors will not be required to be vaccinated, but they must cross with the parent or adult that is. Moises Castillo is the CBP officer in charge of the San Isidro Port of Entry. He says only vaccines approved by the FDA will be accepted. Those without proper documentation risk being turned back. We understand that some are digital and we will accept uh, the digital uh, proof. Uh, and of course, if it's on paper and they have it on them, we will also accept that. He says a photo of a vaccine card will also be accepted. We are expecting heavy travel uh, on that day, actually for the next few weeks. So we are expecting and we're letting you know that there will be high wait times uh, during those times. Castillo says staffing at the port of entry is almost back to pre-COVID levels, but the pedestrian crossing called Ped West will remain closed. We found it more efficient to open uh, Pedis fully. So we will be opening Petty's fully and Pet West will not be open at this time. Pre-COVID, there were two officers at each lane helping ease the traffic flow. But Castillo says each lane will continue to have one officer only, which presents the risk of long lines of traffic. When asked what the reasoning behind the decision was, he said... Uh, it, it's several factors, but I, at this time we're not looking at, at putting officers uh, and two boots on every lane. CBP agents say those traveling to the U.S. for non-essential reasons should avoid crossing during peak hours to alleviate wait times. And that was KPBS's Alexandra Ronhell. The shipping crisis backlog in California was the focus of a hearing at the state capitol on Wednesday. Cap Radio's Steve Milney has more. 
D.D. Myers heads the Governor's Office of Business and Economic Development. She told the Assembly Select Committee on Ports and Goods Movement that the Newsom administration's main focus now is getting cargo containers off the ports. Finding excess space either in the port complexes or outside where you could temporarily store or transfer containers so that you could create more velocity in the system at the ports. But Los Angeles Assemblyman Mike Gibson says the concerns of people who live near the ports, like his constituents, need to be considered too. I'm afraid because I represent the most impacted community, which is Wilmington, and it's dangerous. And I've seen a number of clips. They were stacked on top of each other horizontal, where all you do is have a wind blow and it's going to teeter-totter and fall off. Safety needs to be an issue. Myers told lawmakers the state is also working on transitioning the ports to 24-7 operations and growing the supply chain workforce for now and in the future. And that was Cap Radio's Steve Milney reporting from Sacramento. Coming up, as COVID-19 vaccinations begin for children ages 5 to 11, parents are still hesitant to get their kid the shot. We'll have more on that next, just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. After receiving the go-ahead from the FDA and the CDC, coronavirus vaccinations for kids ages 5 to 11 started this week. The lower-dose Pfizer vaccine now has emergency use authorization for the younger age group, opening up the vaccine to some 28 million children in the U.S. Yet, many parents remain reluctant to have their children vaccinated. A recent Kaiser Family Foundation poll found that only about 30 percent of parents with children in that age group were eager to have their kids vaccinated. Dr. Bob Gillespie is a physician with Sharp Healthcare and a founding member of the San Diego County COVID-19 Equity Task Force. He spoke with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman about vaccinating younger children and talking to parents. What have medical professionals learned over the course of the pandemic about how best to talk to their patients about the vaccine? You know, one of the things that we as scientists have a tendency to do is to rely on data. And when you're speaking to people in the community, their reality is not always found in the data that's been present. Give you an example. One of the concerns that parents have between the age of five and 11 is fertility and their children getting the vaccines at such an early age. The data has not shown any issues concerning fertility. On the scientific side, we're more worried about things such as myocarditis. Though it's rare, it's something that can occur. So you have to first understand your patient and the the people that you're speaking to in the community to understand their concerns. So that's the first step. And the second thing is to be armed with the information that is factual and give both sides of the story. Hmm. And do these strategies change when we're talking about younger kids like this new 5 through 11 age group? Without a question. If you look at what we have done in San Diego County, and people over the age of 65 and older 
we vaccinated over 97% of that population, at least one shot, 97%. And the reason for that is our argument is that in that age group, the risk of hospitalization and death is quite significant. When you look at kids five to 11, you cannot make that same argument, quite the opposite. We know the risk of hospitalization and death is almost non-existent, it's very small. Not non-existent, but small. So the arguments have to be based on other issues. What are the differences in immunocompromised patients or those with pre-existing conditions? Are they more likely to benefit? What about minority patients? Are they more likely? The issues related to mental health and socialization that occurs as we distance ourselves with the fear of getting COVID and our learning changes, our inability to educate our young children. How does that impact? And lastly, the issue that's a, real, a really real issue, what about the impact of long COVID and what it might entail and or might cause issues with our young children? And of course, the issue of how we transmit within our families if our young children are not vaccinated. And vaccine hesitancy for kids seemed to be on the mind of many committee members at yesterday's CDC advisory committee meeting, uh, which voted 14-0 in support of recommending the vaccine to kids age 5 through 11. Here's what Dr. Helen Talbot had to say in that meeting. We have reviewed this data, and I have vaccinated my kids because I feel like it's safe. Um, And I would not recommend something if I did not feel that way. And so I think it's really important Um, To just reiterate what many of us have said, we are parents and we have given this to our children. Is this more personal approach effective at connecting with patients in your view? I think a personal approach is effective as long as you also provide some reasonable reasons for making that decision. In the case of a physician who comes from typically a middle class, upper middle class would be probably a better characterization the argument would be more along the lines of preventing the social concerns and mental health concerns that have come with not being vaccinated. The issue of seven to 8% of potentially getting long COVID, which is a condition where you have symptoms that last greater than 12 weeks out from an infection with COVID. So these become very important issues, not the issue of death and hospitalization. However, in minority populations, on the other hand, the vast majority of those people who did end up with illnesses were, uh, was a high percentage in minority groups. So a different view may be in that population compared to a, a majority population. So you really have to target your message to an individual group as you consider these variables. And what do you think the medical community gets right and wrong when it comes to listening to patients' concerns? You know, I was fascinated as I looked at that Kaiser study. And one of the first things, if you look at parents' concerns, as I mentioned earlier, is is one of fertility. You know, this is something that we have not even seen seen a signal that reduction in fertility occurs with the use of these vaccines. So I think one of the things is we have to focus on what the parents' concerns are. And I think if we do that, we have a better chance of making a difference in getting this group patients vaccinated. In your Sharp Healthcare biography, you wrote, building trust, which does not necessarily take an extended period of time, is the key to helping a patient make the correct informed decision. How do you approach building that trust with patients? In that same study you've mentioned, that was one of the concerns that parents had, particularly minority patients, and that was being able to go to a location that they trusted, that they have trust in. That's particularly in 
the minority population that that becomes an issue. What you do for trust, because of historical issues, often in people of color, it is important to have someone that looks that's providing that message. When it comes to anyone in the general population, trust is built in from a caregiver that that individual trusts. So that is, if you go into a doctor's office who you've seen for a number of years, that's certainly gonna provide a level of trust that will allow you to discuss the vaccine. I speak with every single one of my patients about getting a vaccine. Even though I'm a cardiologist, it's extremely important that we speak with all of our patients because they trust me for other reasons. And with that, many of my unvaccinated patients will go out and get vaccinated of all different racial backgrounds. And what would you say to a parent who came to you that expressed concern about the vaccine? I would say the following to parents that have children between the age of five and 11, that the clinical trials, though not as extensive as the main trials, this was a few thousand patients, just under 3,000 that we looked at, or in this group of five to 11, just under 2,500, I should say. What we saw in this group was that the antibody levels went up quite significantly. There was no increase in side effects beyond what typically occurred in the general population, the fatigue, headache, local irritation, and there was no signal of a, a bad outcome. The dose is about a third of what was given to adults. And all of the information would suggest that this is very safe. But I would also add that we still need more data, that it will be something we'll continue to monitor. We have a number of ways of monitoring these vaccines. And that data, if there is a signal that shows any concern whatsoever, will trigger a stop in using that vaccine immediately. So I would encourage parents that it is very safe, but nonetheless, we will continue to monitor this very closely. That was Dr. Bob Gillespie, a physician with Sharp Healthcare and a founding member of the San Diego County COVID-19 Equity Task Force. He was speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman. That's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.